Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one. Tonight, writer Charlie McCarthy and actors Richard Cooper and Lisa Thurman talk about working on Charlie's play, Bloody Writers. My name is Charlie McCarthy. The play is called Bloody Writers. My name is Richard Cooper. I'm playing the part of David, who is, uh, well, the temporary sort of proprietor of this writer's haunt. My name's Lisa Thurman. I'm playing the part of the American novelist L.D. Power, Lavinia Power. LD's one of the top writers in the country. She's here at the Writers' Retreat here in Ireland, and she's working on her next big piece, but she's also working on lots of other pieces. And so she's being spied upon in her room, which I think is such a great idea. Everybody has, I guess, keeps their curtains open. So you can spy on the other writers and, and see what they're up to. Um, I suppose originally I've, I've been to uh, the Tyrone Guthrie Centre in, in Anna McCarrick a number of times over many years. I've always had a brilliant time there. I have often thought it's a fantastic house. It's a fantastic centre for creativity and all sorts of things. But also I thought it's a really good location for a story, for a drama, because all these strange characters are gathered together. They're all coming from their various worlds, Ireland, far away, wherever. They're all creative in one way or another. And some interesting things inevitably happened there. Obviously, I took that very basic thing and put a bomb under it, I guess. It's completely exaggerated. It's not realism. There would always be like 10, 12, 15 people in Anna McCarrick. I just, you know, did all the things you do, compressed it. I suppose I look for, you know, what what the story is and, and the impact it can have potentially and, uh, you know, what, what I can bring to the role. I used to actually, when I got a script, just read, obviously, like a lot of other actors, just go for sort of what my part is and uh, see, kind of judge the judge the script from there. But I did actually read the whole play. I know it's it's great. It, it jumps off the page, I think. And obviously with, with a radio play, it's just wonderful when something does jump off the page because you can just see it um, or hear it I suppose working in a different way it's very different to, to getting a stage play or a TV script um, a film script I was born and raised in Daytona Beach Florida I went to Stetson University in DeLand Florida and I majored in when I first started there uh, vocal performance vocal performance was primarily singing opera so I decided that uh, I didn't want to be an opera singer. And then I switched over to theatre with a minor in music performance. From a very early age, I was introduced to music from my parents. Both my parents were actually in the RE singers, as it was then. Uh, my mother was a soprano, my dad was a, a tenor. So I was around music from a very early age, performing, singing, playing instruments. So. It was that really that led me into doing comedy and I went into uh, Trinity. I studied drama in Trinity. And, but yeah, music has always been a part of it for me. I mean, mainly I've directed television dramas and documentaries and mostly they've been written by other people. I've written one feature length drama thing years ago called Home for Christmas. Long time ago, I did a few plays with Dublin Youth Theatre. That's it really in terms of directing my own stuff. I started when I was a child. We had a fireplace at the end of the living room 
And yes, we did have fireplaces in Florida because we thought it was cold anyway. And I, you would stand on top of the brick and my brother and I would just pretend either we were the Fantastic Four or act out cartoons or sometimes sing. I suppose that's how I got started. I was always had an imagination or I was listening to LPs of Disney. So I was either Sleeping Beauty or Cinderella pretending in my living room. And then as I got older, I started singing and I was in some singing groups in school. Then I did my first play in high school was West Side Story. And I was fortunate enough to be cast as Maria. And then I went on to university. So yeah, it, it sort of one thing really led to another. And I wasn't really expecting to get into comedy at all because I went to Trinity, did very kind of straight acting. And after that, I did lots of theatre. So yeah, it, it was it was probably inevitable that I was going to do something from a performance point of view in that really I wasn't very good at anything else. I, I was in a totally different world. I was working for Trocara. I had worked in Africa myself and then came back and worked for Trocara as their Africa person, Africa projects officer. And RT advertised for producer directors. They actually advertised for radio and TV. I replied to both, hoping I'd get radio since it was my first love, never even thinking. The TV thing happened to come up first, that interview. I got it. Um, so it was just fate or luck or ill luck or whatever. I would say my first professional job was when I moved down to Orlando, Florida. They were building Universal and Disney Studios, which was a really super place without having to move to Los Angeles because I was scared to death of moving there that I would disappear you know, a single mom with, with two kids. And I was very fortunate. I was very lucky. I booked a national commercial within a couple of weeks of going out and getting an agent. Uh, my, my degree held me in good stead. I had no resume other than the shows that I had done in school. And I booked a national commercial. And then I found that uh, that was terrific because you could work for a day and you receive what are called residuals. So every time that commercial airs, depending on the time of day and the area in the U.S., you receive residuals, which helped keep me going in between auditions. I did do some stuff in the international. Uh, we tried some, like with Apre Match, we tried some material out there. But um, yeah, I mean, really, Apre Match started with RTE and uh, we were given the license to go a bit nuts. And, you know, uh, it, it's one of the things about this organization actually gets uh, maybe a bit of a hard time for putting the shackles on everything. But we there was no shackles on us at, at that time. It was it was great. I'm not sure we get away with it now. I pretty much really snowballed from the uh, the first tournament we did was was France 1998, which was why it was called Apre Match. So then we, we snowballed it from 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 TV into live shows and. The rest is history, as they say. You know, when I came in here, you basically were shoved around into everything, religion, current affairs, all kinds of programmes and the big young peoples, all kinds of things. Um, Nighthawks. The big ambition always was to do drama. And eventually, having done my time in various projects that I didn't really have the thing for, but I had to do them for my penance, uh, I got Glen Rowe, which that time was the thing to get in RTE television, uh, you know, drama terms. It was fantastic experience. I was working with fantastic actors, 
um, Joe Lynch, obviously, Mick Lally, Mary McAvoy, Geraldine Plunkett, Maureen Toll, Emmett Bergen, Donald Farmer, and many, many more. And sure, they, I think I said at one stage, it was like I was used to driving a bicycle and suddenly I'd been given a Rolls Royce. And that's actually what it was. I learned so much on it, um, you know. It was just fantastic experience. So I worked on Passenger 57 with Wesley Snipes and Elizabeth Hurley, Cop and a Half with Burt Reynolds, directed by Henry Winkler. I ended up on the cutting room floor in that, but I did a boat stunt, which was fun. The staple would have been, yeah, me as Bill, Barry as, as Frank and Gary as either Dunphy or Giles. They were great times as well because the real panel, such as they were, and when Liam Brady was uh, came along as well, there was there was there was great friction and great drama. <laughs> so in some instances, we didn't really have to write much. We just sort of you know repeat after them. There was there was it was kind of just uh, there was comedy gold there really. And Bill obviously was so brilliant at stirring the pot. You no, know, you said last week, Eamon, that you felt. That that was not the case. That Brazil had no chance of winning the world. No, I didn't say that, Bill. No, that's not what I said. What I said was, uh, you know. So I mean, and and you know, Bill was just brilliant at reminding people how wrong they were. Well, largely Wesley Burroughs and Antonio Flarta, uh, Maeve Inglesby, Sean McCarthy. They were the main people around my time. Wesley, of course, was the king of it. He was a genius. He absolutely had the most magical touch. But I think even the other writers on it would admit that a Wesley script was just something they could not attain. There was just something beautifully crafted about them, very light, able to direct um, because you had to do nothing and just serve it properly. So that was a great experience too in terms of learning about writing and getting a sense of what worked, what didn't. It used to be that if you were in film, you shouldn't be in television or you shouldn't be doing commercials. But that was my bread and butter. And I was I was a, lo- a hired local actor in Florida, so it wasn't like I was going to be starring in a film anyway. Uh, I would have a supporting part. So it was perfectly fine. And I actually made a very good living doing that. I was able to buy a house and and have someone watch my girls when, when I was working. If I wasn't, I had the luxury of being able to pick them up and drop them off to school, which was a big luxury as a single parent. Uh, so in the time that I worked, I was able to support them through that. People mix myself and Barry up all the time. So somebody thought I was Barry and then Barry was being called this thing, this name Richard, which he didn't even know, like he'd never even heard the name before. So he thought it was some kind of a, you know, slag or disease or something. So, yeah, I knew about him and then I was introduced to him and we became great pals. And like pretty much instantly had a great rapport and both really connected from the point of view of football, sport, would have played as well in uh, Herbert Park on a Sunday if we weren't too hungover. And then I'd known Gary separately from from theatre. Gary, you know, and myself would bounce off each other doing impressions and, 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 and so would Barry as well. But Barry and Gary didn't know each other, but then we all met up and just, just kind of, uh, I, I guess we just had a few ideas for diff- doing different characters to riff off each other. And that was the beginning of Apri Match, really. You know, everything is just storytelling, basically. And it's just various tones of storytelling, whatever it is. You, and you have to respect so-called soap as you would respect anything, any serious series drama or any one-off thing. They're all the same thing. And you cannot patronise them because 
you know, they are what they are. But there's no doubt that when you take a project that's kind of original in the writing, then you have all the scope creating a whole new world, a whole new vocabulary. It's much more exciting. You're not just part of a machine. You really are inventing the machine and then working within it. And that's way more satisfying. I found working with Burt Reynolds, I worked with him on Cop and a Half. And my daughter actually worked with him on a film that I was meant to, I, I went to the audition. I brought both my girls. It was down in Jupiter, Florida. So it was about a three-hour drive from Orlando. And it was during the summer, so I had my girls. And I just said, come on, we're going for an audition. And I used to bring them with me a lot. And uh, it was packed. I remember one of the people in the production studio came up and said, oh, is, is she here for the audition? My youngest, who was six at the time, Michaela. And I said, no, I am. And he said, oh, because we're looking for a child and we're casting in L.A. and New York and Atlanta and Miami. And she looks like she'd be about right for the part. Has she done anything? And I said, no, I have. I'm, I'm her mom. And he said, well, do you think you'd be interested in letting her audition? And I looked at Kayla and she said, OK, we just want to bring her in to meet the director, which was Danny Houston, John Houston's son. And and Mia Sarah, who would be playing her mother, and, and Brian Wimmer. Uh, Bert wasn't there yet, but Angie Dickinson was also in the film. So they said, would you mind, would we have your permission to bring her in? And I said, of course. I said, but I am not responsible for anything that comes out of her mouth because she is six and thinks for herself. <laughs> Within 30 seconds to a minute of being in there, they're roaring, laughing. And I'm just thinking, oh, no, what is she saying? And they came out and said, we'd love for her to have the part. Uh, Mother's Love's a Blessing was a script by Pat McCabe. A series of 200 dramas was being commissioned by David Blake Knox and Michael Colgan. They were the producers. And I luckily was handed this script by Pat McCabe, whom I was a fan of anyway. I think The Butcher Boy is just one of the greatest things. And I got this wonderful script in all its craziness, madness and lunacy. And I totally felt <laughs> totally connected to it and luckily got the most fantastic cast in Pat Kinnavan and uh, the wonderful Joan O'Hara, who was just like, they both were fantastic. That was just such a pleasure. Cedric Cullerton on camera, loads of brain value design. It was just a fabulous thing to do. It's only half an hour, but uh, given his writing and his world, it was really rich and we were able to, I think, match that visually. It was just brilliant. That really gave me a taste for more. I think initially they were pretty suspicious and sceptical of, you know, these upstarts, you know. And at the beginning as well, we were sharing the same studio as them. So we could see them and they could see us, you know. So it wasn't a case that we were in this locked off cocoon, you know, where we didn't come into contact with them at all. You know, <laughs> you did have to put up with stairs, vacant stairs sometimes from Gilesy. Who were they? Who were they over there doing that there? So I think they probably didn't really like it very much at the beginning. And, you know, I think I think it developed its own kind of independent sort of status, if you like. And, and I think they they became fans of it in the end. I mean, when we started doing live shows in Vicar Street, Bill, I mean, Bill had always been a great supporter of it anyway. But um, the others kind of would then came along to the live shows in the Olympian, Vicar Street and everything. So they were, uh, they were, they, they eventually, we eventually won them over. One of the first days of filming, she did film with Burt Reynolds for The Maddening. And so she's standing there with her mother, Mia Sarah, and I'm off to the side. And between takes, 
Bert asks her, he says, so Kayla, what do you think about this movie business? And she said, well, Bert, I'm bored. And she said, and you don't know your lines. And I said, oh, no. <laughs> and what she meant in her six years was she didn't understand that they had to redo the scene from the different camera angles, from the over-the-shoulder shots or the wide shot. And he burst out laughing. And he said, you know, Kayla, that's the first honest answer I've ever gotten from an actress. I was here for eight years in Archie and essentially... I left because I'd kind of done everything that was happening in here in a way. I didn't have the interest in or skills in moving into any kind of a management position, no interest in it or no talent for it. Just felt like the right time to go. The independent sector was beginning to blossom a bit. TG Carroll was just starting. That was actually my first job on Ross Naroon. You know, it was nothing against RT. It was just myself feeling, let's just jump and see what happens. Yeah. So. Oh, in crisis. That Charlie directed, actually. Yeah, yeah, Charlie McCarthy. Yeah, that was Oscar. That that was uh, the first time I'd actually sp- spoken out loud in Irish for a long time. And so I really wasn't sure whether I could take it on or not. But obviously, you're surrounded by fluent Irish speakers. And so it was very intimidating. But we got there. We got there eventually. And it was, uh, I thought it was beautifully written by Anton O'Flaherty. Um, and uh, they got, I think, two series out of it anyway. He was such a nice man. He was patient with Kayla, who had never been, you know, anytime she had been on a set, it was with me, but she had never acted before. And he was, he was so caring and giving. And he introduced her to, to his son. And he was about the same age at the time. I just can't say enough nice things about him. Yeah, I clean any book on myself, set up Icebox Films, and we did a number of projects through that on various Writers mainly, some artists, Adam Anahan, for instance, writers like John Banville, Edna O'Brien, Hugh Leonard. And it was uh, Shemi Seeney's 70th birthday. Archie were making a big thing about it, rightly so, major figure. And between jigs and reels, I had an idea, Archie had an idea. We came together, I met Seamus for the first time. And I think without being too arrogant, I think he really liked the John Banville programme. And I think John may have given him the nod. I'm not. That's all in my imagination. But anyway, we we entered into a kind of really fantastically brilliant collaboration. On it. He was just the nicest, wonderful, most wonderful person to work with. So that was that was absolutely brilliant experience. Yeah, stage work is different. Uh, I mean, I suppose it depends on the type of stage work you're you're doing. You, you know, people say it's such a brave thing to do comedy. I suppose because. You know, if you don't get laughs, it's not working. There's no gray area. But I equally think, you know, if you're doing a stage play, it's equally brave to deliberately not look for laughs. I love Shakespeare. I don't do as much theatre anymore as I would like to do. I just, Shakespeare is so beautiful because it's timeless. And you can do it in any time period and with any costume or any set. If you just trust in the text... It carries you. And by s- speaking it simply, it's understandable. Some people say, oh, I just can't understand it. But anyone can enjoy it from old to young, I believe. Um, Mary Heaney was a huge part of it, deliberately. I'm a, I just asked the obvious question in the beginning. I said, will, will Mary be happy to appear? And she said, of course, why would I not? Why would I not? And of course, why would she not? She was, they were a great partnership. 
and a key part of his life story. And yeah, it was, everybody seems to remember those sequences with her in it, them on the couch, all very natural and warm. I've always really loved the improvisational part to comedy, but also the discipline uh, of, yeah, like being rigorous and learning your lines and doing the same show every night, but making it fresh for yourself and, and for the audience. There's there's a different, uh, you're asking yourself, uh, the different questions being asked of you in that regard. I've been very lucky and I've worked with some amazing people. I just finished filming a production of Long Day's Journey in Tonight with Jessica Lang and Ed Harris and Ben Foster. Jonathan Kent, this is his first uh, film that to directing. He's a big theater director. He directed Jessica over in the West End. And my character, Bridget, for anyone who's familiar with the story, is only mentioned in the in the text. And so she's always back in the kitchen. And they brought Bridget to life. And I had the privilege of helping to bring Bridget to life. So we just finished uh, shooting week before last. Yeah, I was really interested, obviously, in looking at that relationship and seeing it obviously much more than a a marriage and all its richness and all its complexity it was also interesting because she's very fully creative figure herself and their collaboration obviously was a creative one as well her as first reader her as a poetry lover her as a critic so that you know was a very strong i think feature and he was incredibly naturally inevitably i suppose but maybe not always the case really generous towards her and wanted that to be part of the the picture as well because it was true to the work and the life i've done done a fair bit of telly in the uk recently it's in a show called delicious with dawn french and amelia fox which was lovely it was all shot in cornwall and other shows as well called no offense where i was playing again kind of a very different character um he's a serial killer uh, in the first series I wouldn't get cast as many serial killers in Ireland. It's funny that they look at us slightly differently in the UK. To me, I see quite a lot of limitation in casting and, and casting directors where they kind of think, oh, well, like he's he's tall. So therefore, like the previous person who's associated with that part is kind of small and tubby, whatever. But I think it that definitely seems to have opened up. I mean, it, certainly in the film and TV world, I, I guess the flip side to that is that a lot more Irish people are playing American parts, a lot more English are playing American, vice versa. I mean, obviously, you're still looking at Irish movies that are being made and, you know, without naming names of recent movies, the accents drives you potty, you know. Be, you know, that sort of, hey, how are you? Well, I'd be up in be jappers in Bigara, you know. For my film education, I was in the first class, which is now known as Bow Street. It was the factory on Barrow Street at the beautiful factory building. Jim Sheridan was involved in the factory. His daughter, Kirsten Sheridan, John Carney, Shimmy Marcus, Maureen Hughes, and got to meet lots of Irish actors as well. Well, I mean, I, I think all writing is visual because ultimately you're always making images or trying to make images, whether they're actual pictorial or sound images. But really, most good writing is about imagery, creating a vision of something, of a place. It might be very ordinary or it might be extraordinary, but that's what you're doing. So in a way, there's no difference. But then there's obviously a technical difference in how you have to write a play. But I always saw it like I could switch it to being a movie in my head. Obviously, you'd have to do a whole load of technical things to turn bloody writers into a 
TV thing or a feature or something. But I could see it absolutely in my head. You know, I can see all the images. Otherwise, it wouldn't work or something, you know. And I think if you have the images in your head, hopefully through the writing, the, the audience will have the images in their head with the help of great production, sound design, etc., etc. Yeah, I mean, it has been good. I, I, um, it's, I think it's tough. I think it's tough in Ireland uh, because the there are, you know, I mean, I think it's it has improved. As I say, the opportunities are are uh, more varied than they were. Um, but I do think, um, like in the comedy world, things should be, I think there should be more recognition of comedy as a craft, for example. Like say within arts grants and the Arts Council and all that, you've got a lot of, we get a lot of, you know, writers, for example, get a lot of kudos and um, poets, uh, artists, visual artists get a lot of support. But you don't really see that in comedy. You don't really see that kind of level of, of, of support that, you know, to indicate the comedy is a craft that, you know, needs to be. It's not a hobby. I think sometimes it's perceived as a sort of a, a silly hobby that people do. Um, but it's there's a there's a huge amount of work and a huge amount of craft involved in it. I think empowerment for actors has been a long time you know in waiting it's it's changing and actors are being listed there's like there's actors on the board of the abbey for example and i think that's very healthy uh, you know it's no surprise to me that there's a lot of actor writers for example that have emerged over time because actors see that they need to create their own work quite often but to answer your question yeah i do i think um actors should be a member of Aistana, absolutely I have tried to do other things and I keep being drawn back. This is, it's in your blood and I absolutely love it. And the terrific thing about acting is you can never be too anything. You can't be too young or too old or too tall or short or fat or thin or whatever because we're such a diverse planet. And I'm really enjoying the fact that women are getting better roles, more roles, and also with different ethnicities. We're a big planet and we can't just keep seeing the same, 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 same. That's funny you should say that because that's what I'm working on. I'm putting together a one-man show. I mean, I do a lot of stand-up comedy, but it's in a pretty kind of confined world. And I definitely want to bring it out into theatres, do a tour. And I'm planning on doing that next year. And there you heard the voices of writer Charlie McCarthy and actors Richard Cooper and Lisa Thurman talking about working on Charlie's play, Bloody Writers. The series producer of Drama on One is Kevin Reynolds. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One.